we ended off still within the framework of the Kalama Sutta, sometimes translated Charter for Freedom of Inquiry, pointing out a few experiences which show that the teachings need to be tested. They can be tested. In fact, life reveals very, very often uh, their truth. Uh, If it doesn't, then you better question whether the teachings are true. Uh, Does identification with the body, attachment to the body, lead to suffering? I think I gave a few examples. Uh, Very clearly it does. So I always knew that. I've read it a million times. But it's somehow different when you actually see it happening to you about your body and you feel that law and work. And it's at work. Then it's living wisdom. It's not just wise words that make you feel good when you read them or say them. which, by the way, can be a a serious obstacle sometimes. Uh, Living and teaching mainly in Cambridge, as I do, which is probably you all or most of you know, is a city full of universities, colleges, professionals, a concentration of highly educated people, uh, many of whom have very uh, highly functioning intellects, uh, who can read these teachings and understand and understand the verbal teachings and uh, really grasp them quite well. And even when experiences happen, uh, have an explanation that's quite consistent with the teachings and that makes one feel really good because you come up with, ah, this is it. Uh, Very often, the satisfaction of the explanation, which is still thinking, uh, is so fulfilling that it's as if our work is done, whereas in a a very important way it hasn't even begun yet. Uh, So that teachings, verbal and otherwise, have a very important role to play, but mainly as pointers to our experience. The real book to read is this book. You have your book to read. It's not one versus the other, as I hope you will see before this uh, we finish this evening. Um, to do some more work with the Kalama Sutta, as you know, it praises doubt, questioning. This is fine. Not always so in uh, spiritual and religious circles, or in any circles, sometimes political. Um, Sariputra, who was one of the Buddha's main disciples, once asked by the Buddha uh, what he thought of a certain teaching that he had just received. And Sariputra said, uh, I don't really feel fully confident in that yet, in that teaching. And the Buddha praised him. He said, that's good. That's good. Don't, until you really know that it's true for yourself, that's the right attitude to have. Um... I think I better go into the sutra, uh, the kalama, directly because there's a fair amount that I hope I can cover this evening. I don't know if I'll be able to. I need to refresh your memory, and I like to, uh, when it's about a scripture, uh, I like to, at least from time to time, give you the actual words, not so much just my interpretation. Come, kalamas, don't go by by reports. Remember, these are... uh, the Buddha, they're perplexed, they're puzzled. We don't know which teaching to follow. And he is, he's giving them some advice, and he's telling them not to give final authority to the following. Don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by consistency with your own views, by probability or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. 
when you know for yourselves, and this is, of course, a crucial word, yourselves, when you know for yourselves that these mental qualities are unskillful, these mental qualities are blameworthy, these mental qualities are criticized by the wise, these mental qualities, when acted on, lead to harm and suffering, then abandon them. When you know for yourselves, that word again, that these mental qualities are skillful, these mental qualities are blameless, these mental qualities are praised by the wise, these mental qualities, when acted on, lead to well-being and happiness. Uh, Let's start with some of the qualifications that the Buddha makes. About the, there are ten, really. Ten sources uh, that should not be given final authority. And as you'll see in a, in a moment, that doesn't mean they're worthless. Take one of the main ones, scripture. That is uh, a, a text that may be ancient, that is ancient, uh, and that has been read, studied, practiced for perhaps, in our case, 2,600 years. But all the, the great traditions have scriptures. They have collections of koans, uh, uh, lives of, uh, of the famous masters, and so forth. The attitude that the Buddha is getting at, I think, can be captured by a teaching story from ancient China. There was a young teacher who had come to be recognized as someone who really had a lot to offer, and he was very quickly coming to be recognized in China and people coming from all over to hear his teaching. And One day, before a very large group in the meditation hall, uh, he was giving a talk and a very old, famous, well-established master came in and sat at the back. The young teacher spotted him and out of respect for his age and also knowing that he was a very accomplished master, uh, invited him, said, please, come up and sit next to me as an honored guest. So the elderly uh, teacher came up and sat next to him. And then the young teacher was starting to give, was giving his Dharma talk. And in it, a little bit like what I'm doing, he kept referring to, uh, to this koan and that master and the Buddha said, and uh, uh, quotes very, very often, the sacred texts, ancient texts, and so forth. This exchange between these two great monks. And little by little, the, the, the older master, who was sitting next to him, uh, every time he mentioned a scripture, he started to doze off. And, uh, and this was not just once. And so, little by little, uh, the teacher in front of everyone was just dozing off. The more quotes there were, the more he dozed off. Finally, the younger teacher couldn't stand it. And he said, uh, do you find my teaching so unacceptable that uh, you're, you're sleeping uh, while I'm giving it? Uh, he was really, in a way, hurt. At which point, the older teacher reached over and gave him a very, very strong pinch. And the younger teacher screamed, ouch! And the old master said, ah, that's the teaching I came all this way to get. Ouch, mind. That's direct personal experience. Someone pinches you, ouch. No expert needed. Everyone knows ouch. Uh, so there is a danger in, uh, in, in all circles, so, but in Dharma circles where we extol direct experience and attainments, actual attainments, not just intellectual ideas about the attainments, it's very easy, especially for people who are, who are uh, very good at ideas, uh, to present these ideas and either be confused by themselves or confuse others as well, I have lots of quotes tonight. <laughs> so you know what category I'm in. 
I think in contemporary language, it has to do with, with what is called walking your talk, uh, so that uh, it's possible to be too big for your britches. To it sounds as if you know a lot, but you're really not there. So here's something from a Zen master, Bankai, from his uh, wonderful book, by the way, called *The Unborn*, and it's regarding the discrepancy between verbal understanding and ouch understanding, true understanding. Here's what Bankai has to say. Your words and your attainment to someone, your words and your attainment do not match. What you say flies before the soaring dragon. It's ahead of the soaring dragon. What you are, what you are hobbles behind a lame tortoise. Now, what is being said here is not to discredit scripture. What it's trying to say is uh, to weigh it. That is, scripture is, you don't give final authority to, this, to a text simply because it's ancient. And you heard all those. I'll, I'll give you a sample of a few of them uh, with ways in which they go wrong. One of them is logic and reasoning, if you recall when I read, read that off. This, the example I'm going to give you is uh, far-fetched and silly, uh, yet it gets at uh, something that I've seen, especially if you live in Cambridge. There are people who have very powerful, rational, logical minds, which can make a case or defend anything and be quite convincing. Uh, I think you all know what I'm talking about. Uh, the problem is that the logic and the reasoning is not necessarily true because it has so much to do with what, it, what is tacitly assumed. Let's say in a, a, the initial assumption, uh, if, it's, if it's incorrect, then even though the logic and the reasoning is powerful and impeccable, uh, the conclusion is absurd or not even true. This story comes from the Jewish tradition during Tsarist Russia times. It comes from a actually a sociology book that I read a while back, and it was a section on humor, and it's about the humor of oppressed people. People who, and it listed from a number of cultures, uh, people who are oppressed, discriminated against, having a very hard time, being dominated by, let's say, other elements in the culture. And apparently, there seems to always be humor which is only told within the culture. In this case, it would be Jews telling Jews. Because to say, what, if, as you'll hear it in a moment, if you would say that in Tsarist Russia, you could get killed. So it, and all of them have this in common. In these jokes, the group that is being discriminated against and dominated and abused, uh, the joke comes up with, the, the, in this case, the Jew comes out as incredibly superior, and the person who's oppressing him is a kind of semi-moron. In other words, the oppressors always come off looking very badly, and the people who are oppressed come out looking great. And, you know, the ob obvious psychological uh, need for something like that, I think you, you all grasp. So the story goes something like this. It's the misuse of logic and reasoning. It's very silly. But uh, I've found that this goes on, even when you read very powerfully written texts, which, based on my experience of actual living, uh, take you further and further away, like with the Heart Sutra in Mahayana, some of the, or emptiness, some of the brilliant philosophic treatises, they're brilliant, uh, take you so far away from experience that I think uh, their value has to be questioned. A rabbi gets on a train in Tsarist Russia, remember, and uh, he's going from Moscow to St. Petersburg, and one of the Tsar's officers, a high-ranking soldier, gets on, and they're in the same compartment. Uh, the rabbi starts to pull out his, his food and starts to eat. And then the czarist officer says to the rabbi, what is it about you Jews that make you so smart? So the Jew says, oh, we eat a lot of herring. Okay. Intelligence and herring. Okay. If you don't eat herring, you're not intelligent. 
Okay. There are people who never even heard of the word herring, and they can be brilliant at any rate. So the, the, the officer is, hmm, and he sees that the rabbi is eating herring. So he says, can I buy some of your herring? And the rabbi says, of course, sure. He says, how much is it? I'm making up money. I don't know what, the, what it was then or even now. And he says, 200 rubles. So the czarist officer gives the rabbi 200 rubles, and he starts to eat the herring. At a certain point, he gets really irate and annoyed, and he says to the rabbi, 200 rubles? I could get the same amount of herring in Moscow for five rubles. And then the rabbi says, aha, you see, it's working already. (laughs) (laughs) Also an example of a good teacher and a good student. You know, there's learning going on there. Another one, this, one's not, this one actually happened in Thailand with Ajahn Mahabua. Uh, Matthew has spent time with him. I think we'll confirm what I'm about to say. Uh, Mahabua is sort of U.S. Marine Corps style dharma. Take no prisoners. Also, he can be a loving grandmother. He can be a stand-up comic. You never know which one you're going to get in a given moment. Um, at any rate, at one time, and there was always after lunch, he would listen to people who would come to visit the monastery, which is way out in the jungle in, Th- in uh, Thailand. This one is about what this suggests here is to not get give absolute authority to your personal opinions, to what makes you feel comfortable, what you assume is right. It's not that your personal opinions or views uh, need to be discarded, but don't give it absolute power. Don't give logic absolute power. Don't give a scripture absolute power, final authority. This, I, this fellow was from California. It's important that you know that. Uh, and after the meal, there's an opportunity to ask questions about Dharma. And so this through a translator, Ajahn Mahabhu is there, and, and he starts saying certain things. And uh, I, you know, it's not clear what led up to this. It's not really necessary. And finally, Mahabhu asks him, how do you know that? And he says, oh, I follow my heart. That's California, isn't it? M-A, you just say M-A? I follow my heart. You know, that's how I know. And Mahabhu doesn't get it through the translator. He makes, they go over it again and again, three or four times. Finally, he gets it. I follow my heart. Finally, Mahabhu keels over with laughter. <laughs> he is just beside himself with amusement. And he says, you follow your heart, that cesspool full of urine, feces, he's very earthy, uh, and pus full of misconceptions, delusions, self-deception, that's what you follow, and then he just couldn't stop laughing. Uh, I get the feeling that, you know, this is, now, this is not to discredit that, but to have a little bit of humility that, what you think you really got, maybe and maybe not. Um, what the sutra is saying, we'll go through all ten. Um, in a certain, uh, I'm going to, in a sense, lump them together. They're all telling you different ways in which people come to conclusions that something is true. And what the Buddha is saying is, or someone will, will present it and say, this is why it's true. And the Buddha is saying, don't take any of it as, uh, give it final authority. And then here's, well, you've already heard it. Uh, when you know for yourself, and the standard that's used is that it's skillful. It's a skillful mental quality that leads to skillful action. Skillful means it doesn't lead to suffering for you and for someone else. The beauty of that is, in a way, it's culture-free. Because no matter what the culture is, not some uh, absolute moral standard. It's saying, does this lead to suffering for yourself and for someone else? If it does, uh, then maybe this teaching isn't worth following. Maybe it's not beneficial for you. If it's helpful, if it is beneficial, then keep going. Keep following this practice, this teaching, and see where it goes. Um, 
When I first heard this teaching, I was overjoyed because it, it made me feel more comfortable with Buddhism. I felt great. I can uh, uh, let Nathan Rosenberg, my father, in on this, and the two of us together can, can practice because he's still with me from the grave. He doesn't leave me alone. If you recall, very critical. Uh, he left. There was, there was nothing left. I mean, he was a skeptic, cynic, at least. And so my weakness was a difficulty in, in a way, deferring to scriptures and all kinds of other things. My starting point was, yeah, right, combination of Brooklyn plus Nathan Rosenberg, lethal. Okay. Um, when I read it, I misread it, as many people did. We were sort of the first generation that brought these teachings here. We came out of the 60s and the 70s. We were in the throes of rebelling and anti-authority. And, well, you know, if you, if you weren't alive, you probably have heard about it or you're... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Those who you who were there, we never let you forget it. That you weren't there. Um, but I was wrong because what it implies is uh, throw authority out. But that's not what the Buddha is saying. If you read the entire scripture, what's being said is don't give final authority. It also includes the counsel of the wise. It includes, so what it comes down to is very, very balanced. People will say, well, that eliminates faith. Uh, we took the refuges. Do you remember Doug gave a talk on the refuge? Who needs that? Precepts? Uh, it's just, just follow my heart. You know, just check yourself. Uh, that isn't what is being said. Faith is not thrown out. In the Buddhist teaching, uh, here, faith is not set up in opposition to this um, fresh, radical um, willingness to investigate and to test teachings with your life. Um, faith in, in the Buddhist teaching is provisional. There, there isn't an appreciation of blind faith or just absolute faith. That's true. But there's a necessity for faith uh, to, in, to initiate energy. How else will you uh, jump? How else will you have the energy uh, to try, whether it's faith in a teacher or whatever gives you the urge to jump in and give the teachings a try, if you have none of that, how will you ever find out if these teachings have any merit at all? After all, this is given in the context of a particular body of teachings. If you just throw them out, how can you test them? So you're not doing that. There's a provisional faith, enough so that you have the energy to, to do some practice with it, and so then you can see. And if it doesn't confirm uh, what it, if it doesn't uh, come through with what it's suggesting, then you drop it. If it produces what it's talking about, then you keep going. It's the same with the precepts and with, uh, with the... Um, in other words, here's the difference, though. For example, not to kill, not to lie, not to steal, not to misuse uh, uh, communication, not to cloud the mind. They're not really commandments in the Buddhist teaching. It's not sort of... Uh, you do it because your teacher told you to, or because the Buddha said. It may start that way, but really, uh, finally, it's always about wisdom. Because you begin to see, if you're only following the precepts, the ethical code, out of uh, allegiance to your teacher or the Buddha said, I wouldn't trust it very much. In fact, many people take refuges and precepts in every religion and look at the world. You know, it isn't exactly the most ethical place. So having all these things around is no guarantee of anything. And that includes Buddha Dharma. Uh, but what is being emphasized is really to investigate the precepts. Uh, does lying work? It's not that you believe it so that you're a good boy or you're a good girl. Uh, you don't lie because it doesn't work. It produces suffering. Uh, maybe you've seen it work. Inevitably, the truth comes out. And then there's trouble. Do I have to spell that one out? Sexual misconduct, 
period. You all know that one. We probably have all done it. Whoever hasn't, you throw the first rock at me. Probably we all have behaved badly when it comes to that, you know, that energy. Okay. Um, what, so it's wisdom helps us every step along the way. That kind of learning's different. If you recall, we've been emphasizing first-hand learning, where the clear seeing and the learning is the discipline itself. It's formless, because that can go on anywhere at any time. Another kind of discipline is, is the kind that is to follow certain forms. Get up at a certain time, sit, walk, sit, walk. That's useful, too. This is a more subtle kind of discipline, which has to do with refining your life, and it's something that it itself, as you do it, becomes more refined and more of an influence in your life and a wonderful way to live. That means awareness is, awareness is in the service of you, of your living, because you're willing to learn from what you see and hear. But you have to be able to, you have to be willing to learn from what life is teaching you. If not, then what I'm saying is, it's, it's just very, very different. So faith has its place to launch you. Uh, to set in motion certain actions so that you can behave and then find out. Uh, in the remainder of the, of, the, uh, of the sutra, I think I'm not going to read it, I'm just going to uh, summarize a little bit. Um, the Buddha gives further guidance. What is it that's unskillful? He talks about uh, the kalesas, that may be a new term for some of you. They're kind of, they're basic to the Buddhist teaching. They're, greed, hatred, and delusion is one kind of translation. Another one is the wanting mind, uh, the aversive mind, and the confused mind, or the deluded or um, ignorant mind. Uh, these tendencies, this is the Buddhist teaching, are very, very deep in us humans. And behavior that issues forth from the mind that's constantly wanting tends to not to be behavior that produces suffering. The behavior that comes forth from the aggressive, angry, aversive mind typically does not have a happy outcome, whether it's for you or for someone else. Confused minds do not necessarily deliver wise and compassionate lives while living. And so these are the three toxins that are to be uprooted. Uh, in Thailand, in the forest tradition, uh, when I say Mahabua takes no prisoners, a lot of the language is cut the heads off the kalesas, kill the kalesas. You know, I realize I thought Buddhism is a very peaceful, gentle. Of course, he doesn't mean to be aversive to them because uh, the way you do that is through awareness through awareness and through seeing, clear seeing, penetrating into, as we heard last night in Woods' talk, you see the impermanent, empty nature of whatever it is. And as you see that, it starts to weaken and lose its power over you, and it's replaced by something else. Uh, so these are included uh, as a further clarification of what is skillful and what is not. I want to link that I might have to go a few minutes over with our meditation practice that we've been doing here. Uh, I think the linkage is important so that you understand this is a very, very practical teaching. We're following, whether you know it or not, the Anapanasati Sutra. That is a teaching of the Buddha which is about mindfulness with breathing. It's of and with breathing. Uh, the first aspect of it, which we did a fair amount of, first few days, uh, has to do with mindfulness of the breathing exclusively. You've heard that enough. That develops samadhi, a strong, concentrated mind. It brings with it a certain peace and stillness. This is very important. It also equips the mind uh, to be fit to be able to look, that is, if you're going to test a teaching, the mind has to be, it's like being an athlete. Uh, an athlete trains to be fit. Your muscles have to be in shape. You want to be an Olympic something or other, you have to do those things that enable you to be fit to do it. 
We're training the mind. This is mind training. Developing those qualities uh, that are beneficial. And all of them flow out of clear mind. If the mind is all over the place, confused, very easily distracted, it can't accomplish what we're talking about. Now, if some of you feel, that's my mind he's talking about. (laughs) That's why we're here. Uh, We're here, it's not to discourage you, it's to understand that something could be done about it. The Buddha makes a very important statement. What he's asserting is that human effort, properly directed, can bring bring, bring us to the end of our suffering, mental, emotional suffering. That's quite a statement, or is it in our head? It's possible. Okay. So the first quality we're developing, and it's not something that you're over with after the first few days, you can do it for the rest of your life, is developing that steadiness of mind. We'll call it samadhi. And that's a wonderful, wonderful quality of mind. Um, Some of the benefits must be obvious to you already. there is a certain peace and joy that comes with it. Um, it's rejuvenating, it's refreshing. When the mind gets really steady, let's say when you're with the breathing, with some continuity, you feel something, even if it's just uh, seven or eight breaths, and then somehow the world looks a little bit different. You have a bit more energy. As that develops, that can be quite dramatic, what comes out of that very simple practice. Okay. Uh, it's also a place to take refuge in temporarily. Sometimes we have a lot of suffering in our life. And even though the thrust of the teaching is to be mindful of it, sometimes it's a bit much. When you establish some samadhi, it's like having a nice home to go back to when you need it. As this image in Thailand is used of, it can be made out of, if you're homeless, then you're really vulnerable. It's like you're on the street. People can rob you and abuse you. Uh, the wet, the elements, it's terrible. It's very hard to be homeless. But then you get a bamboo house, and a wooden house, and of course a brick house. Uh, there are varying degrees of stability that can withstand hardship outside and also protect you. That definitely has its place. It's not liberation, it's not necessarily uprooting any of the calaises, but it's got a very, very important role to play. It brings with it a certain stillness, which is quite important. But the stillness that it brings with it, so you already know that it's valuable. But what's the limit of it? It it can also be misused. The limit of it is you have to understand what its limits are. The kind of stillness that it brings is sometimes referred to as stillness with delusion or stillness with attachment. Because the stillness is premised on secluding yourself from all the other aspects of your mind which are intimidating, the very things that brought us here. All kinds of suffering, fears, loneliness. Uh, I don't have to lay it all out. By going to the breath again, in, in, out, in, out, in, out, you become absorbed in it. If you haven't tasted it, you will. Uh, some of you I know have, and maybe you'll have to just take it on faith. Uh, you know, after the retreat, talk to your, you don't believe me, because after all, of course, I would say this. You know, I'm in the business. <laughs> Dentists are going to tell you to floss. I'm going to tell you to meditate, follow your breath. <laughs> okay, but maybe some of you are Sangha friends will be more honest with you, more more reliable. The limit of it is, if you get very, very attached to that kind of silence, uh, it's silence based on secluding yourself from the very things that are intimidating you and that are a problem. It's not that there isn't insight. You're not not facing... uh, so much of what your life is temporarily, as long as you're in that nice place, it's great. But then when you come out, you've changed a bit. There's some weakening of those calaises because you're not watering them. But they're still, they're not uprooted by any means. 
And so there's another kind of stillness and inner strength, and that comes from insight. I'm having a... Uh, so the breath, uh, the kind of the kind of of stillness that comes from insight uh, is stillness that arises uh, because you've met and learned how to live with the, what intimidates you, your fears, your anger, your loneliness, etc., etc., etc. Let me uh, skip to the sutra. Uh, a large part of when we begin to practice is, and it's not, this model is not limited to the breath. It's a straight Vipassana model. We're using the breath. You can use the breath, as you know, all, all along. And so, uh, one of the important ones is getting to know the mind. Getting to know the body, getting to know the mind. And the breath is, uh, enables you, it helps you, facilitates that happening. As you breathe in and breathe out, you come to know your body. As you breathe in and breathe out, you come to know different feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And let's go right to the kalesas directly. You come to know the mind, mind states, in choiceless awareness that we're doing. That's what, when we sit and just allow whatever is there to come and go. Of course, a lot of what you're watching is your mind. And... Uh, what is being pointed out there that uh, it's very important to come to know the wanting mind when it's there. That mind which wants, wants, wants. It never feels fulfilled. Gotta have, gotta have, gotta get, gotta get. What is that like? In that moment when you are mindful of it with or without the breathing helping you, you start to feel what wanting is like in this laboratory. Now, the Buddha is asking us to, to test teachings, whatever they are, in the laboratory of your own experience, but also taking into account the counsel of the wise and anything else that might be helpful. It's just to not give it final authority. Finally, the final authority has to be each one of us, of course. But we take into account, uh, for example, the Buddha, we would be fools, otherwise we would be inventing the wheel over and over again, uh, inventing fire over and over again. It, it's foolish. There, there are some people who have been very, very wise, wiser than us, who've come before us. And we'd be foolish not to take their counsel, but we also have to test it for ourselves. Okay. So when we, in the, in the the meditations where you're sitting and breathing or just sitting in the choiceless awareness and all the different mind states come up, you begin to see the mind that wants. You begin to see the aversive mind, greed, hatred, the mind that, uh, that dislikes things, that wants to annihilate things, that is aggressive, that's angry, that is trying to always distance itself from something because it's all unpleasant. We know that mind, too. We all have it, both of them. And then there's the ignorant mind, the mind that's, um, that, re that thinks happiness will come from accumulating as many things as we can, that thinks, we, that thinks the body is self, that we will live forever, in effect, not rationally. Uh, so that's the ignorant mind, which is often confused, in darkness, ambivalent, in conflict, okay, we get to know those minds. Well, that's what the, the Buddha in the Kalama Sutta is talking about. Those mind states, when you act from that place, typically are not so skillful. Have you noticed? When you, but that's mainly the mind that we live our life out from. If you haven't begun to examine your life, what other mind is there? We don't, you know, we hear about, oh, the silent mind, the empty mind, spacious, you know, Buddha nature, original nature, uh, sounds good, but do we really know it? And are we living from that place? Probably not. So we're living in an imperfectly, doing the best we can, and that's all we can. At this point, each one of us has a mind that's in a certain shape. The Kalama Sutra, in effect, is saying, look, do what you can with what you have, but but pay attention, learn, 
take into account what other people have said. Try to confirm it with your experience. If it's way ahead of you, then you may have to go on faith until you confirm it. When I started working with Krishnamurti, he kept talking about stillness, the beauty of stillness, everything's healed in stillness, the st- silent mind, how spacious, on and on. I don't know, you know, it sounded great, but I was light years away from it. But I had respect for him. I could see this man is not a fool. He wouldn't lie to me. And so that faith kept me practicing. And perhaps I've tasted a little bit of that, or I'd be a fool talking to you this way right now. Okay. Um, so you can see faith is not thrown out. Texts and teachers are not thrown out. Even teachers can be helpful, believe it or not. Uh, so as we get to know the greedy mind, the aversive angry mind, the mind that's dark and confused, we begin to get to recognize that, to see what that's like in the simplicity of a protected retreat. When we try to do it in daily life without any training, with the mind ill-equipped to look clearly, it's very hard to put the Kalama Sutra into practice because the mind's all over the place and we're soon lost. Little by little, what we're doing is equipping ourselves to be able to see what these teachings are telling us can be seen, and that is possible for us as humans. And as you come to see that, you also see something else. You see the mind when it isn't wanting. How nice. Maybe it's just five seconds when you're just okay. You're just sitting there breathing, and you don't want anything in particular. Wow. Not too bad. And then it starts wanting again. It starts wanting, not wanting. <laughs> it is that perverse. <laughs> okay. We see the mind when it isn't, aver- when it isn't uh, angry, when it isn't aversive, when it's full of love, when it's, when it's full of gratitude or generosity. Natural. It's just there. What does that feel like? Oh, that's a different quality of mind, isn't it? We experience the mind in those moments when it's clear. How wonderful. It's a a serviceable serviceable mind, a mind that's really adequate. It it sees the sky is blue, the grass is green. That's an experience someone said. What is enlightenment? The sky is blue, the grass is green. One says, well, I already know that. What do I need to meditate in hurt my knees and my back? Do you really? It's an ancient exchange. You really see green, and you really see blue, etc. You really see suffering. So, uh, can you see how this is preparing you? This is just sitting. Now, as you do more and more of that, and I want to end with this, and this is... um, I suppose a promise, a promissory note, which uh, maybe will be delivered or maybe not. A lot of it has to do with you, all of it. What's also uh, in the teachings is that there is a place beyond all of this. That is beyond all this coming and going. We chanted in the sutra, we chanted in the evenings. Everything that arises passes away. But these are conditions, clouds. What the teacher, the Buddha is saying, the original nature of the human mind is luminescent and pure. But what we're caught up in is what is sometimes translated as adventitious. It's not intrinsic. It's just this mood, but then we identify with it. We make I am whatever it is, and then we have it. I am this, I am that, I'm not this, I'm not that. That's the torture chamber of the mind that practices times. If you can watch this arising and passing away, that's the power of choiceless awareness. Those clouds, as you see, they're empty nature, they're impermanent, insubstantial nature, not as a theory and not as an idea. It begins there, of course. Look at a cloud someday. It's very interesting. You'll see at a certain point, there's nothing to look at. 
ethereal. Well, a lot of our emotions, when they come, they don't seem ethereal. They feel like they're made out of rock. And the training, of course, is to stay with it. Fear? Yes. Is that easy to learn? No. Can it be learned? Yes. Gradually, and all the different things we're doing are contributing to equip the mind so that it's in a position to actually investigate, to look carefully at what we call fear, what we call loneliness. That otherwise, how else are we supposed to get to this pure mind, this Buddha mind, this luminescent mind? Assuming the Buddha is not lying to us, or himself deluded. Hey, so what can be experienced, and many of you certainly had a glimpse and more of this, is that as you watch these clouds come and go, come and go, and that's the heart of the practice, they lose their power, and then you find all along the blue sky has been there. Now, Here's, I'd like to leave you with this. The Tibetans have a very beautiful way of putting it. They're saying, they talk about the cognizing power of emptiness. That is, when the mind is free of attachments to thought, all of its likes and dislikes, all those conditions, it's vast, it's spacious, and it's Sometimes enlightenment is called the great stillness. But stillness doesn't do it justice. It'll sound like it's just a a terrific good night's rest or something. Uh, Because in that, that stillness is highly charged with a very subtle form of life. There's a highly charged, extraordinarily refined intelligence, compassion, gratitude, metta, all the things that we're also cultivating these qualities. But all the love you can ever want is in there, is in that emptiness. Don't tell me how, why, how that works. I don't know. Or don't ask me. I mean, it's mysterious. You taste it and you're more loving. You taste it and you're seeing this clearer. You're more intelligent. You're wiser. You're a little kinder. I don't know how that happens because it's just quiet. And it gets more and more spacious and more and more quiet. And there's no question that what's going on is wonderful. But it's not something I can put into words. The Buddha didn't try. So um, from that mind, in a certain way, you don't need the Kalama Sutra anymore. You don't have to... You know, but doing is this beneficial? Is this not beneficial? Is this harmful? Is that, you know, because things become you have fewer choices. Americans hate to hear this sometimes because we love to have endless, you know, fifteen thousand different flavors of ras apple cran instead of just good old apple juice. You know. Uh, the reason it is good news. When the mind is clear, it's not confused. Everything is seen as it is. The confused mind has endless choices. On the way, well, maybe I, I'm not sure with the lists. You know, if I do that, I get this. But then if I do that, maybe this. But I don't know. Um, when the mind is very clear, life becomes a lot easier about yourself and about everything else, including what is skillful action, whether it's verbal or physical regarding you, regarding the people who are in your life. And it's not to discard what took you there, of course not. But we don't start with that mind. Uh, but it's here. It's not something that we graft onto ourselves. That's the whole point. I'm going to... Last quote. This comes from a venerable Ajahn Chah, who uh, some of us had the good fortune. He was here for a few weeks when, in the, I think it was about the second year or third year after IMS was open, a very great Thai forest master. And this is one of the things he says. Here, in terms of this is what we really have been doing, 
whether you call it choices, awareness, thought, is not important. The purpose of the practice is to seek inwardly, searching and investigating until you reach the original mind. Another word for it. The original mind is also known as the pure mind. The pure mind is the mind without attachment. It doesn't get affected by mind objects. In other words, it doesn't chase after the different kinds of pleasant and unpleasant mind objects. Rather, the mind is in a state of continuous knowing and wakefulness. Thoroughly mindful of all it is experiencing. When the mind is like this, no pleasant or unpleasant mind objects it experiences will be able to disturb it. The mind doesn't become anything. In other words, nothing can shake it. Why? Because there is awareness. The mind knows itself as pure. It has evolved its own true independence and has reached its original state. How is it able to bring this original state into existence? Through the faculty of mindfulness, wisely reflecting and seeing that all things are merely conditions arising without any individual being controlling them. We have, a, I think, before we have a few moments of silence, Doug better give me a pinch to make an honest man out of it. Ow! We can have a few moments of silence now. May we continue to look into ourselves and we see things exactly as they are. May such clear, direct, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.